0: We're going to read verses 21 through 28. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1,524. 1524. Um, We'll also have the words on the screen for you. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it have their minds focused on the things of God. It was just last week that we reached what is a major apex in, in Matthew's gospel, a summit, if you will. And it was there that we that we saw Jesus asking this most important question: Who do you say I am? And it was Peter. Who had made that good confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then blessed Peter and called him the rock, and he gave him the keys to the the kingdom of heaven. For it would be through this confession, this proclamation of the good news about who Jesus is, that Christ would build his church. But we also saw that, that these keys were not just given to Peter, but to each and every person who makes that same confession. For that is the role of a Christian. They are to go into the world and declaring that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God. Now one would think that at this moment, Jesus would would then be commissioning his disciples to to take this message and to spread it out far and wide. That he would be sending them out with this declaration of good news. But that's not what we see. Instead, in, in verse 20, we read this. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. You see, Peter, he, he had the right confession when it came to who Jesus is. But he didn't have the slightest clue when it came to what Christ was supposed to do. His confession was incomplete. And, and it wouldn't be until after the resurrection that he would gain a, a fuller knowledge of what this confession truly meant. Neither Peter nor these other disciples were ready. Sure, they may have identified Jesus correctly, but they fell well short when it came to understanding his mission. Fortunately for us, we don't have to travel far to learn what that mission was. For it is in the very next verse that that, that Jesus would explain to these men what he came to do. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he might be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If the first half of Matthew's gospel focused on the identity of Jesus, it is in this second half that we discover his mission. And it is in this verse that we see Jesus communicating that mission to his disciples for the very first time. Now that these men knew who he was, in order for them to continue in their discipleship, they must now understand what being the Messiah is all about. And what was Christ's mission? To go to Jerusalem, where he would suffer be killed at, at the hands of those religious leaders, and then be raised back to life on the third day. The time for avoiding the opposition has passed. Jesus would now face his enemies head on. If, if you recall, he and his disciples, they, they had traveled Uh, Prior to Caesarea Philippi, that Gentile territory north of Galilee. And and the reason that they had done so was in order to avoid confrontation, this, this, this tumult that was brewing between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. But all of that was about to change. Jesus would soon turn his face towards the south and begin his journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of David, the heart of Israel, the, the center of Jewish religious life, the city where the prophets were killed and those who were sent by God were stoned. It was there in Jerusalem that Jesus must go. No longer would he evade those religious leaders For it was his father's will that he would now deal with those who wanted to take his life. These elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, also known as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Scribes, these members of the Sanhedrin, they were the ones who oversaw the religious life of Israel. They were responsible for the people of God. And they should have been the ones who had recognized the Messiah first. They, not Peter, they should have made that good confession. And yet instead they had rejected their king and plotted to kill him. These were the men that Jesus would have to face. And and the way that he would deal with them would be by suffering at their hands. He must allow them to take him and, and let their murderous hearts do as they please. And as they did so, his posture would be one where he would not fight back. Rather, he, he would permit himself to be mocked, to be beaten, to be shamed, and then to die a horrific death all upon the whims of this ruling class. And to top things off, the only glimmer of hope that he had was this impossible notion that he would then rise from the dead three days later. Now how's that for for a master plan? Go into the den of my enemies and allow them to do as they will and trust that I will be resurrected after three days. Is it any wonder that, that the next thing that we see is Peter trying to talk some sense into Jesus? Look, look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Having the advantage of knowing the full story, it's, it's easy for us to, to look at Peter's action and be critical. But but think about the situation. I mean, is Peter really being that thick headed? You heard the plan. It, it sounds like a horrible one. Definitely not something you would expect from the Messiah. And, and if you or I had been in his shoes, I'm, I'm sure that we would have done the same exact thing. For the, for the wisdom of the world says that you cannot be a king if you're dead. Remember, Peter had, had just confessed Jesus as a Christ, the son of the living God. He believed him to be this divine king who would bring in this everlasting kingdom where there would be peace and prosperity. But how could he ever do that if he wasn't alive? This, this plan that Jesus proposed didn't make any sense What we see in Peter is really a lack of trust. I mean, think about it. He, he knew who Jesus was. That he was this divine king. A God in human flesh. And yet now he was going to correct him as if, as if he knew better of the Messiah's role than than Jesus? What what Peter demonstrates for us is, is just how fallen we are as human beings. Even when we know what God's will is, when it is laid out before us in plain language, we still prefer our own will over his. We think we are so smart, so wise, and that God doesn't have a clue. And in our pride, we we, we try to supplant him as as the ruler of this world because we think that we know what is best. It's just like in the garden when we ate of that fruit. That was our declaration that, that we are our own masters, that we know better than God. And now here, this is exactly what Peter was doing. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus would not suffer Peter's arrogance. And so he he nipped it in the bud right away. Look, look, Look at verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Oh, how quickly the tides can turn! It was just moments earlier that, that Jesus was praising Peter for his good confession. That he, that he called him the rock and given had given him the keys to the kingdom. But now he is Satan and a, and a stumbling block. And to add insult to injury, Jesus even turned his back as he rebuked Peter. He, he was emphasizing his point. So what's going on here? I mean, did Jesus really need to be that harsh? Yes, he did. For for whether Peter knew it or not, what he was doing was of the devil. It was back in Matthew 4 where we saw Satan be the same stumbling block to Jesus. Look, Look at verses 8 through 10. Again, the the, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What the devil was tempting Jesus with was a shortcut to the kingdom. He, he was giving him an out. He, what he was basically saying was this. You can, you can have the crown without all the suffering or the cross. Just bow down before me. Forget your, your, your father's will. You can have it all if you'll just take it. We see this same temptation in Peter's words. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Kings are supposed to be strong, not weak. You shouldn't have to suffer. It was no longer the Father who was speaking through Peter. Rather, it was Satan. And Jesus was right when he said, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. There are, there are really only two ways of thinking in this world. There, there's man's way and then there's God's way. And the way of man is the way of power, the way of might. It, it is to impose one's will through the use of brute strength. But the way of God is the way of humility and suffering. It is offering yourself up to those same brutal forces. To a world that is, that is hungry for power, God's way seems like nonsense. This is what we read in our first scripture reading. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, to the, to the world, the cross seems weak. It's failure. Kings are supposed to be strong. How can you gain a kingdom by dying? But to God, this, this apparent weakness is actually His strength. And it is His plan to advance His kingdom. This is what Jesus meant when He, when he said this back in Matthew 11. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. The, the desire of men is to have this kingdom without falling under the authority of the king. They, they, they want to shape the world and, and mold it into their own image, thinking that they know better than God how to create peace and, and, and harmony. And so they try to take the kingdom by force. And they do so by imposing their own will. And yet in their efforts to create this, this better world, they, they only create turmoil and more violence. I mean, is it any wonder why we see so much division today? Because this is exactly how we think. We want to take the kingdom by force and we will use any means necessary to do so. Do you you think the violence that we see on the streets today is for no reason? No. Of course there's a reason. These people are hurting. And they want that hurting to stop. And they think that the only way to do it is to impose their will. Or, Or think about the election that's coming up. Why do you think there's such heated debate it's because people are fighting for what they think will be a better world. It's as if if the nation is going to collapse unless we get the right people elected. And so we'll we'll demonize the opposing side and portray our champion in this messianic light. I hate to break it to you, but but Jesus is not running for president. And no matter who gets elected, it will not bring about. The kingdom, if you're putting your hope in the, in the rulers of this world, you're going to be extremely disappointed. But unfortunately, it's not just on the streets or in the worldly realm of politics that we see this mentality. For, for we have bought into the same kind of thinking and, and brought it into the church, Too often, we we think we can grow God's kingdom if we just impose our will upon the world around us. And so we become these culture warriors, thinking that if we can just change the the, the moral sentiment of our nation, then that will fix all of our ills. The problem with this mentality is that it's been tried before. Think of the Pharisees. I mean, they were the, the, the cultural warriors of their day. And yet Jesus condemned them, saying that they belonged to their father, the devil. Brothers, sisters, if we as a church have our minds on the things of men, then we have set ourselves up in opposition to God. Imposing one's will is not the way. But if we can't win through the use of force... Or by political means or by shifting the culture, then how can we see victory? What did Jesus tell us? Look look at verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you see it? It's not about winning or, or losing. No, it's about dying to self. And embracing this, this path of suffering that our Lord has chosen to take. Dear friends, when, when, when you have your mind on the things of men, you are always going to put man first. But when your mind is on the things of God, you will follow the will of your Father in heaven, no matter the cost. What, what Jesus is saying here is this. If you are going to follow me, then you must put away all of your selfish desires and pick up your cross. Once again, we have come to one of those dangerous passages where we can miss the meaning if we are not careful. The, the, the cross has become such a dominant symbol in our society our society today that, that I wonder if we truly know what it really means. I mean, not only do we have it displayed in, in our churches, but, it, but it's also hanging on the walls of people's homes and has become the branding of every hospital. If you go out into the streets, you will find people walking around with gold and, and silver necklaces with the cross as its centerpiece. I mean, the imagery is everywhere. And for us, it's a symbol of hope, a symbol of healing, a symbol of love. But for these disciples, the cross had an altogether different meaning. It was the epitome of death. For for it was the Roman instrument of public execution. And it was commonly understood, and what these disciples knew was that that before a, a criminal would meet his end, the Romans would force him to to carry his cross as he marched towards the place where they would nail him to it and then hang him high for all to see. It was just one more way that they had of shaming that man. So when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, what he essentially was saying was this. Just as I am heading to Jerusalem to both suffer and die, so too must you be willing to follow that same path if you want to be my disciple. It's been 2,000 years, but the call of Christ hasn't changed. To be his disciple demands a denial of self and a willingness to even give up one's own life. Back in Matthew 8, we we read about two men who wanted to follow Jesus. What what did Christ say to them? Look Look at verse 19. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my Father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You want to follow Jesus? Well, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your comfort, it's going to cost you your friends. It's going to cost you your family. It's going to cost you all those selfish things that you are holding on to. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you your health. It's going to cost you your very life. To follow Jesus is to walk headlong into suffering. But what other choice do we have? For what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Listen, dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. There is a a fate that is far worse than death. And if you hold on to to the things of men, that fate will find you. But for the person who has their mind set in the things of God, even though Christ commands them to take up their cross, what they will find is that that what they have gained far outweighs what they have lost. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Which brings us back to the reason why Christ must go to Jerusalem in the first place. In order that he may suffer at the hands of men and be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. This, this is what it is all about. Jesus must take upon himself the penalty of mankind's sins. He must be that perfect sacrifice in order that we might be justified before God in order that we might, might find that life that he was talking about and eternity spent with him. Listen, if, if Peter had had his way, if Jesus chose to follow the ways of men, there would be no kingdom, for there would be no salvation. But thanks be to God that our Savior That our king chose to follow his father's will as he took up his cross and died for your sins and for mine. And because he did so, there is a time that is coming and to some extent has already arrived when the glory of Jesus will shine forth in his kingdom. Look at our last two verses. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Dear friends, judgment is coming. And for those who have taken the path of man's wisdom, seeking to take the kingdom by force, what they will find out in the end is that they have lost everything. But for those who have taken upon God's wisdom, which is the way of the cross, this way of suffering, what they will discover is that even though they have have lost their very lives, they have gained a kingdom. Trust in this one who died for your sins. Believe in this Jesus who rose from the dead three days later. For he gives to you life. A life that is far more valuable than the life that you currently possess. That is the way of the cross. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for, for your wisdom. We confess that it is, it is beyond us. I mean, if we had our had things our way, we would still be lost in our sins. It's only because of your Son who, who followed your will that we can stand before you. It is because he chose to take up his cross that our sins are paid for. Help us now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to take up our own cross and to follow Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.